Hey guys, welcome to the Street Cop Training Podcast. Who knows what episode number this is, but I have Jeff Smith here, teaches Street Academy. He is an instructor at Street Cop Training. He is a 29-year veteran law enforcement officer who brought a ton of his knowledge to the training game on behalf of Street Cop Training. He drove up today. He's got a class tomorrow, his class being taught, Street Academy. Streetcop.com to find out his upcoming training courses, but without further ado... Jeff Smith is here for his first time on the podcast. He's been a bitch lately, wants to be on the podcast really bad. So he's here. Who wouldn't want to be on your podcast? Oh, dear God. Come on. Here we go. Uh, Jeff teaches a crucial training program that what I find interesting is cops tend to, or administrations and police officers, tend to put different kind of trainings on different kind of pedestals. And here's a training course for, you know, quintessentially a couple hundred bucks that will teach you how to stay alive. And I often remind people in class, like, you know, if he's coming behind me and he's following me up or following up in the same location that I'm at, guys, what's your life worth? Is it worth $199? Uh, and let's explore some of the things that you're going to discuss with us. What do you think the most important things for law enforcement to know is things that men and women in law enforcement need to be thinking about as they go into the field and things they need to prepare for. And then we'll talk about a little about, has the Academy done anything to prepare you for this? And can you depend on the Academy or do you have to fall on to additional advanced training to get some, some value? So what are some of the top things that you would begin to want to convey to folks regarding what you want to offer, what you want to change, at least in the, in the, in the safety aspect? Well, it really falls down on our shoulders as individuals to take a good, hard, ego-free assessment of what it is we do out there. Because typically, and I'm speaking generally, not in every instance, but a lot of police training in America is broken. Because when we get into use of force encounters, when we get into tactical encounters, and every encounter we do on the street is tactical. When we get into a tactical encounter, we tend to compartmentalize it as, a, as, as opposed to looking at, at it as an entire incident. And we compartmentalize the whole beat, bang, and break kind of thing. The whole striking, throwing, grappling, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That stuff is fantastic. And we all have to be on point with that kind of stuff. However, we all have to understand the science behind what we do and use science and our brains to avoid getting in these confrontations because you'll have a much happier life and a much better career the less confrontations you get in. And I always say the best fighters fight the least. Yeah, do you think there's a lot of situations that could have been averted through some proper training? There's no doubt. I yeah, spent a, a, right? a whole day talking about it. Yeah. I, and, and as a trainer myself, uh, you know, I created a lot of training scars when I was younger. I was fortunate. Our defensive tactics team, our survival team, I was surrounded by a lot of a lot of big brains, a lot of really deep thinking guys. And we we discovered a lot of training scars that we created along the way that we had to go back and fix because of our inexperience and traditional thinking about the way cops are trained. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it, it takes certainly in this climate currently, whether or not you want to see it the way it is, which for me, I'm kind of thinking it's a little bit of a jaded climate. But, you know, we're here saying, hey, we recognize it. We don't, uh, you know, listen, police officers don't do things because of malicious intent. They're doing right. their best. They just, the training aspect of things, and it kind of sounds like I'm trying to promote what we do, but I really kind of am for the right reasons. Training is an important aspect. And, a lot of situations can be averted. And unfortunately, the reality of things is, and I will have this conversation with anybody, 97% of the training that's offered to law enforcement is pretty much crap. Yeah, I mean, it's broken. It really is. It's honestly, it's broken. I mean, in a police academy, 
you talk about, you do de-escalation tactics, you do communication stuff, you do beat, bang and break, the striking, the grappling portion of it, the firearms portion, and they're all separated. They're all completely separate blocks from one another. And then once you go through that block, a lot of times in an academy, you don't go back during that academy and repeat that at all. Mm -hmm. You don't do a little bit of firearms training every day. You do a lot at one point. And by the end of your academy, your skills have gone straight down the crapper because you haven't gone back and maintained those skills and they're extremely perishable. By the way, credit to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Uh, That program, we actually shot throughout the whole entire academy. And we had different kind of drills set up. And Although I think it still falls short of what's needed, it was probably the only most thoughtful. And I'm guessing, of course, because you collected with the kind of, the kind of funding they have. And a lot of guys will retire and be instructors down there. And people who are attracted to a job like that at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center will be probably the best of the best or at least have a lot more to offer than just a regular. I don't see regular Joe Schmoes, this is my job type of deals going on to want to better law enforcement overall. So yeah, they actually, they actually spread it out quite a bit. I just, I just taught a class on, on Monday. Uh, one of the officers in the class, they're mandated to shoot once every other year. Wow. That's a state mandate. What state is that? Florida. Insane. It is insane. Uh, I basically said to him, so, you're, so what you're telling me is you guys can't shoot for shit. <laughs> you can't, how could you possibly know how to yeah, shoot? Right. If you're shooting, I mean, let's, let's face facts. Just um, coming back after a hand injury, I had a lot of trouble coming back and getting my firearm skills back to the way they were before. Just, be, just from a hand injury, just yeah. being off a couple of months. Crazy. And our department was pretty good. I mean, our department was pretty progressive when it came to training. But even so, our firearms training was not nearly enough. Oh, no. And that comes down to everything we do. I mean, the little things matter most on the big stage. How many times do you see a video of a cop where something really, really small got them into a huge deficit right at the beginning of the confrontation that really dictated how that confrontation went. And those are the ones that end up on YouTube, on CNN, in high def, 24 frames per second, 24 still images per second of our screw up. And the little things matter the most on the big stage. And it's out there for the whole world to see right now. Yeah. And that's that's what's creating the controversy around cops because we didn't have that before. You know, prior to the onset of the digital age, we didn't have that. We didn't have those 24 still images per second of the bad things that we did or the mistakes that we made, yeah. whether they're malicious intent or, you know, done out of innocence or ignorance. Right, right, right. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. It brings me as we're sitting here to this thought of this push for defund police and the actual res- resolution to it is actually fund police, get them trained where you need That's to be. Correct. Cause let's face folks, uh, let's face facts, folks, you know, my uh, lieutenant, a little older guy that we had, he used to go, we're the necessary evil. You can hate us all you want, but you need us. Right. And if you want to hate us less, if you're one of those people who is anti-cop and you want to resolve the situation, the problem is we are just here placating to some nonsense. Generally, people who are calling for the defunding of police are probably the dumbest human beings I've ever seen in my life. They're the vocal minority. They're not the majority. No, 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 sure. no, no. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, uh, it's funny. I was talking about. I was talking about yesterday I was on the phone with somebody and their father who had grown up in New York had been back to New York and and was a big fan of New York city had been back recently. And he made a comment to this person I was talking to and remarked it as he had never seen it so bad. It has gotten just back to the point where we were back into the eighties in New York. It's absolutely out of control. It's a dangerous place. And if you think about it, we've got the onset, the onset of the digital age with social media is can create, can cause a city to burn, literally. Because when I first came into law enforcement, right after that was Rodney King. Uh, imagine if we had social media when Rodney King happened. Yeah. That was a terrible incident. Imagine if that went viral 
on, instead of just being on the evening news from the helicopter video, it went viral on body cams, cell phone videos, surveillance cameras. Can you imagine what would have happened in this country then? Yeah. And, you know, for that period, you know, it was 92, right? 92. And then we had, then there was Ruby Ridge, then there was Waco. And then we went for a little while. Then we had Michael Brown and Ferguson. Then we had Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And now we've had, you know, Minneapolis and, Cities are just burning because we can people can stir up such a, a crazy crap storm of just really slanted opinion. Yeah, many any, making up make the thing sound like anything that it is. Completely, you know I mean, right? completely untrue sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just taken out of context. So I mean the world demands that we that we be perfect. And we know that we can't be perfect. We right. know that it's not possible for us to be perfect. But, you know, Vince Lombardi was a great football coach and a pretty damned interesting modern philosopher too. And his great quote was, you know. We know that we can't achieve excellence, but if we chase it somewhere along the way, we can't achieve perfection. But if we chase it somewhere along the way, we'll get to be really good or excellent. You know, we, we, we have the Red Ninja here today. Let's just go drag his ass into here. Get him. And uh, we'll just add him to this to this podcast. Get him. Get that dude in here, Jay. We can be like rock stars and share a mic. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, let's get Jeff's mic. Yeah. We can talk loud enough, you know. You better want to slide it closer to him. He's a little soft-spoken. I like how she's yelling in the background. Like we can, we're gonna be able to hear her in the podcast as well. Uh, you know, I had something to say, and I can't remember what it was at this moment. I got to write these things down as I go along. So um, you said something that led me into a thought too, which I always say we we spend so much time as cops focusing on when the confrontation starts, and once it starts, we spend all a lot of time on focusing on getting out of the confrontation. But I don't think we spend nearly enough time on avoiding the confrontation. And I'm not talking about de-escalation and communication. I'm talking about using your brain to recognize certain factors that will help you avoid getting into a confrontation that may actually change your life for the for the worse or the life of somebody else. Yeah. 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 Welcome to the stage, <laughs> Kenneth Lewis Williams. Lewis. I'm shocked you remember my middle name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a it's a good middle name. Yeah, Lewis. Let's call you Lou Williams. That's weird. It's a good name. No. Yeah. What made you choose pink today to wear? Because I wanted you to talk about it all day. So I was like, you know, well, why would Dennis talk about me? Let me put this pink shirt on so he can always talk. It's about not me. easy being my friend at times, is it? Yeah, I don't mind it. Like Last night was, was hysterical. It was very uncomfortable because you're taking lots of pictures of me. I was instigating. <laughs> He's like, I don't like taking pictures of people. I'm like, so every time somebody saw him, uh, like, oh, my God. I hate having my picture taken. I hate it. Well, I'm I, cool on videos and I can I mean, it's tough to be the ugliest like, street cop instructor. It's just weird. <laughs> What'd you say? It's, it's tough to be the oldest, ugliest street cop instructor. Yeah, it's it appears that way. It appears <laughs> that way. I don't know about the ugliest. I don't think you're a bad looking fella. You know. Anywho, um, Kenny Williams in here. We're going through this conversation of having some police training talk. I figured I'd bring you in. It's a good time. Might as well. Why would you do we, You know, we were going to do a whole different podcast with you just in it, but shit, you're here. We'll make it a, uh, a three person podcast today. What are some of the things that you want to bring to light here? We're talking about, well, Jeff will fill you in some of these things. What are we, what are we talking about here today, Jeff? Just just how the, the way the training is broken and the way we traditionally train as cops and how we need to be a little bit more forward thinking and actually think about how adult human beings learn and retain information. It's huge. I got a great topic. We could talk about the the, the safety and tactical aspects of the front seat interview. Oh, yeah, we could do that. Okay, I'm in with it. Why don't you guys start? I'm just going to be here to be an observer. Well, I'll just jump into it this way. A lot of people don't like that that tactic because, you know, the, it's to fear of the unknown. And we get taught, we get pounded into our heads from day one as baby cops. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And everything is absolutes. And there are degrees of absolute. And in law enforcement, there is nothing that's absolute other than the fact that you want to get home alive at night. And I always say this, and I wrote it in an article that I posted after somebody 
jumped on him in comments about doing front seat interviews. You know, as a SWAT cop, you'll run up into a bad guy's stronghold, his home, where all his weapons are, where he knows the territory, where he knows the turf, to get a little bit of dope that may or may not be there based on an informant's tip that may or may not be reliable. And you have to look at, is the juice worth the squeeze? I mean, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. So much so that law enforcement agencies around the country, including the unit that I used to work in, are, stop, are stopping doing those types of entries. The Breonna Taylor incident. Stopping doing those kind of entries because they're so dangerous. When you think about what he's doing, think about the lethal dose of fentanyl. 200 micrograms. Tiny, 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 tiny. How many micrograms in a kilo of fentanyl? He stops a guy and get, grabs a kilo of fentanyl off the street. How many lives are you saving by seizing a kilo of fentanyl? I mean, it's exponentially more than getting, you know, an ounce or two of Coke by using an armored personnel carrier and yanking a door off the front of a house and putting a 10-man entry team, putting their lives in danger to run in to get something that may or may not be there because of what an informant says. Mm -hmm. So that tactic, if you prepare for it, and this, and this article I wrote, I was talking about, you know, in the front, the advantages of it are you can see things and hear things and smell things. You get the three-dimensional vision that you don't get when you're standing out on the side of the road with the traffic of the highway going back and forth. Mm -hmm. You get to see the pulse in their neck. You get to hear the little things in their voice. You get to hear their voice cracking. In there, tactically, they're restricted. Their movement's restricted. They have little to no ability to fight. If you get to the point where you have RES before you put them in there, you're at a huge advantage because now you can check them for weapons. You've now separated from the car, them from the car. You've completely eliminated the risk of pursuit. If your car is set up right and you don't have a rifle in the car and you, and you, you have anesthetized the driver compartment of the vehicle of all weapons and you're carrying, if, if you're not carrying a knife that they're at, that they have access to, and if you've prepared and thought about, can I fight in a vehicle or even if you've trained, that can be a fantastic tactic. So SWAT guys, so SWAT guys and narc guys like me, we'll high five over a pound of dope we seize out of a house when we put 15, 20 people in danger to seize that dope. On the side of the highway, when you're getting large loads like that, you're not even really dealing with the poor decision makers. You're you're dealing with guys that have been paid to run the dope that don't have a huge stake in it, like a traffic or trafficker or a low-level addict that's decision-making process is altered by chemicals. So the advantages of that, in my opinion, far outweigh it. Even, I even use two of his videos in my class when I talk about using common sense when you're handcuffing people. If you've got somebody sitting down, don't stand them up to handcuff them. Handcuff them while they're sitting down. I use two of his videos where he comes right up, has the guy turn and put their hands out the driver's the passenger door window, drop door, and handcuffs them. And they have no ability to run. They have a limited ability to fight at that point. He's got the balance. He's got the power of position. He's higher. His his point of control is higher than theirs. There's everything. He has everything to his advantage there, especially if you have the tech, the technical ability in your car to have a like an ignition override. So if the vehicle, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the way it works is we use the automatic start. So if I stop and say I'm going to go search a car, I turn my car off. Automatic start runs for an hour. They jump in the driver's seat. They push the brake without the key fob being in there. Kills everything. Mm -hmm. Kills everything. So yeah, that comes with a lot of cars. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's getting sure. pretty predominant now in yeah. back to vehicles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even if, you uh, you know, as long as it's safe, you know, I've, I've seen some cops have their rifle racks in their cars. You know how rifle racks have a backup key. Mm -hmm. seen a lot of cops just leave the key in the rack. Crazy. Dumb. I mean, yeah. just, to, just to know, not, not intentionally stupid, not intentionally trying to create. Well, everybody thinks that's never going to happen to them. Yeah, everything's not going to happen to them. It's all about convenience. You know, unfortunately, we don't have the ability to interview people of 
were killed in the line of duty. We can't go right. to heaven and have a sit down interview right. and say, what would you have done differently? Right. So we've got to take the the things that have occurred and try to make better decisions based on the things right. that have occurred. And, and I don't take an opportunity to uh, make fun of or, no. or, or poke. No. This is, and I actually said this in my last class. I go, it's a tough decision for us to have to make a decision that we're going to now begin to review police officers that were killed in the line of duty and what they did wrong. And it's not going to feel nice up front, but if we can save some lives by doing that, then it is what it is. And I'll, I'll own that. One of the greatest police quotes ever is by a guy named Sid Hill from Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office. If we don't learn from the mistakes that we decide on the phone, if we don't learn from the mistakes that killed him. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think a lot of people come down this mindset, like it could never happen to me. Right. You know, cause it never happened to me. It's never happened right. here. Um, and statistically, you're more likely to get killed in a small agency under 100 cops than you are in New York City or Chicago. Mm. You're more, you're statistically more likely. Yeah, to Chicago. Killed. I don't know. They had like 30 cops shot this year. Not killed yeah. though. Yeah. Just shot though. Yeah. yeah. Who the fuck? I was saying this in class. Who is taking that exam? 30. Hey, what do you got? How many cops do you think they have? 10,000. Oh, they have a shit ton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, New York City. Well, they had 33,000. I know those guys are running for the hills. They can be down to like 30,000. I mean, they are literally fleeing the agency, hanging it up, oh, yeah. going elsewhere. I mean, they're not done being cops. Right. But they got Same smart enough to realize to get the hell out. There's a guy in my class. There's a guy in my class on Monday. 26 men in the police department. I think he said 26 men. In 2018, two of their officers were sitting in lunch. A guy walked into the restaurant and executed both of them. In Florida. In Florida. That was the uh, that was Broward County Sheriff's Office, right? Yeah. I don't know. We'll go to the Sheriff's Office. Remember, they were yeah. sitting eating Chinese food. Mm -hmm. They were on yeah. route, those guys. Yeah. Yeah, scrappy. They're just, they're just sitting there. They got ambushed. And I remind everybody that when we talk about the 15, 20 minutes in my class, I try to give everybody the field training they, they should have had in 10 and a half hours, right? Right. I'm trying to remind them of some things that we can do that can dramatically increase your opportunity or chances of surviving this job. I'm not talking about in general. Like even when you're going to park and write a report, go somewhere where you're fucking disappeared out of, oh, the sergeant wants me to be visible. Then go, yeah, then go sit in the goddamn median right. on a highway where it's very, like, you know, it's a weird place to try to pull over. Don't go park in a parking lot. Don't yep. go park on a side street. Are you crazy? Yeah. And if they're not making you do it, Go into a cemetery and hide out. Right. Go in the back, stay away where nobody's going to come in and try to find you. Get the hell out of public view because you are letting your guard down. And I always remind everybody, if you are not treating this job like it'll take your life at any given moment, you're going to die. Tenth of a second. That's oh, all it takes. yeah. It's all it takes. It's one crazy. Tenth of one second. Yeah. And, and we say this with the intention of people. Listen, I, you know, my mind as we sit here, I go, there are people intently listening to this and there are people who are rolling their eyes. No doubt. Yeah, there's no question no about doubt. it. And that's fine. Uh, the naysayers can be the naysayers, but we'll still be out here delivering our message. So back to your front seat interview. People really want to know this stuff. Let's compare the outside the car interview to the leaving people inside their car and then having them sit inside the police car. So it's three different comparisons we got to do there. So why don't you go ahead and Ken, you give a great explanation on, on the things that you do. I mean, you even had your friend, the uh, psychologist, go over the psychology of this. Um, not as exciting as me when we have an interview here, but you know, that's why I'm me and he's him and you're you and Jeff's Jeff. Jeff's pretty good. Jeff's pretty good. You should have been uh, like a news anchor. A news anchor. Well, like maybe one without like a camera. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like sports radio or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, or yeah. I'm not feeling You got a ham radio. <laughs> what did we say the first basement? time I was at your office? I looked like a grown up Caillou. Is it remember that? Remember Did that I name? say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, come up with some of those zingers here and there. I am doomed when I get older, man. I, I there's so much owed to me for all the shit that I dish out, but I think it's funny. It yeah, your karma is your body's gonna go straight to shit at like 48 years old. Don't you're, say you're that. You're gonna be crippled. No, you're, no, you're, no. You're gonna be knock kneed and pigeon toed. Well, I got that already. <laughs> anyway, so Ken, go ahead. 
All right. So when it comes to the front seat or even out of the car interviews, when I first started working, just, I didn't know anything. So I would always leave them in the car, general patrol, stop car, go back, do my thing. Were you doing passenger side or driver side approach to start with? Initial, so I, had, I went through a good Academy and they always like talked about the passenger side approach. They still focused on driver, but it was always, when I was working a major road, I would always go on the passenger side just because it made more sense to me. Like it was logical. Like why, why am I going to go stay? Let me jump in for a second real, just interrupt you for a second. You know, people have asked me, what is the common denominator amongst all the instructors here at this company? And, and the answer is high intelligence. I mean, it takes a smart person who's never been given perspective on that to realize as dumb as it may sound, there are so many fucking cops who are still making driver's side approaches in the middle of goddamn highways. I mean, how unintelligent do you have to be? And then you get the one guy's, oh, well, you don't know where we work. There's cicadas and tarantulas and rattlesnakes. And by the way, dude, that's a real thing, right? So if you work in an area with rattlesnakes, sure. I'm with it, right? You get a pass. But a far majority, 99, yeah, it's true. Did you know that night in the in the desert, the snakes come out of the desert and lay on a hot asshole? No, I didn't know that. That's fucked up. Yeah, they get bit by snakes on traffic stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you start, like, you know, listen, you ever drive through Louisiana and see, like, the bayous are right oh next to the God. highways and shit, whatever the fuck they are, right? Yeah, but I mean, there's, so you're telling me that there's no safe place. You can't say, hey, pull up there a mile, a half mile up the, the road thing. so I can get it depends. on. Yeah, no, no. For the far majority of the, of the stops, uh, certainly, arguably, should be on passenger side. But there are going to be moments. So people just misconstrue it. And, you know, listen, yeah, if you're yeah. saying anything, people are going to take an opportunity to find any little hole in it and try to drive their fucking point into your hole. Yeah. That sounds no, really strange. No absolutely. So I always say when I talk <laughs> about Happy Pride Month, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I always say when I talk about the passenger side of perks, there's no absolute, no one tactic works perfectly for every situation. That just doesn't exist. It really doesn't. No, no, no. Even but overall, as a, as a tactic. But as, in general, as yeah. a tactic. Even on the highway, you'll have guys that will pull over to like the left side of the road. I'm not fucking now going to go stand on the right passenger side of the car because he pulled on the into the median. That So I'm putting myself in traffic. So, I mean, right. ultimately, I would try to get him pull over to the right side. But if traffic's too fucking thick, all right, I guess I got to do it this way. And I'm going to go on the driver's side. Um, Yeah, we'll keep up on that then. So then like as time went on and I started to pull people out of cars, I just felt a lot more comfortable. Um. I feel more comfortable being able to see what they're doing, taking them out of their comfort zone. When I first started working interdiction on highways, I never, ever put people in my front seat. Even when it was proposed to me, I was like, you got, you're nuts. That's insane to me that I'm not going to put people in my front seat. Um, so the first couple of years I, I worked highway interdiction, I would pull them out and we would do the, you know, the interview roadside. I'd put them in my front passenger tire. I would open my door, uh, my passenger side door and conduct the traffic stop that way. Um, small things, talking to my friend who's a psychologist just small things the way i even have my car set up i have my computer is it's a just a a psychological barrier most people if they want to do something it's the fight or flight instant they're going to take the path of least resistance they know the door's open so if i have my computer that comes up to you know my chin or something and we're communicating and they know the door's open and they want to run or fight me that computer is even though it's just a computer screen it's a barrier for them and the door's wide open and they're going to more than likely take the, the path of least resistance mm-hmm. with my door on my passenger side is the same concept i open my door so they're standing up there i'm standing behind my door and i'm doing it that way um as it, time evolves and evolves i love putting people in my front seat I, I feel very comfortable there we train that way um, my weapons, I have weapons where I can reach them with either hand The in the occupants of the car that are sitting in there with me. They, there's no way they could. And I have a lot more control. If they start reaching around, I can be like, stop reaching around. If you continue to reach around, I can only assume that you're going to do something bad to me. That That's not, you know, like that, or you're a complete moron. Like, I don't know how else to say, like you don't reach in your pockets in my car 
And if I tell you to stop, you keep doing it. Like that's just not something that's very logical. Yeah. And, and they're, they're, they're tending to obey. They seem very vulnerable in the videos we watch. Yeah. I mean, you're taking them out of their home field. Like the way I describe it in, in class is, you know, their car is their home field. My car is my home field. If you want to go on like a neutral side, we can do it outside of both of our cars. And we're kind of on an even playing field. But I put you in my car. That's my home field. You don't know what I have, where it's at or anything. Yeah. I leave them in their car. I don't know what they have or what and what their plan is. And most cops, when you do a traffic stop, if you're not attacked immediately, it's when you go back to write your warning and you leave them in their car and they have time to think about it. Like, oh, shit, I got that warrant. Here it is. He's going to run my name. And then they're like, am I going to run or am I just going to jump out with a fucking AK and start shooting at the cop? And if you're sitting in your front seat. The odds of you doing much in that situation is not good. And yeah, you're a disadvantage. Yeah, yeah 100%. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. We saw people I go, you know, I had a kid maybe three classes ago said, raise his hand and goes, um, I have never seen the front side, uh, the, the front seat passenger approach and interviewing. Could you explain why it's done? And I said, you know, it's dude. Uh, I want to give you credit for being a young guy and asking in that matter, because most people say, I would never do that. Right. So we got to ask, why is that done before we make assumptions of why it's done? Um, and I, you know, when I first started teaching this training program, I remember I used to play a clip called Here in My Car, I Am Safest of All. That's why people must be removed from their vehicle, because you are the barrier, just that physical barrier of you outside their car and them feeling protected inside their car, that vulnerability is not there. Yep. And we need to do that psychologically, right? It's not done for a reason that's, uh, you know, detrimental to the person who's being stopped. It's advantageous for the police officer to be in control of the situation. As a matter of fact, advantageous for the person being stopped. So there's no miscommunication, misunderstanding of what's going on, right? We don't, we have less dead people or less people injured or hurt or less fights occur because of good tactics. Yeah, yeah for sure. sure. That's a huge part of my class. And what everything that he's talking about, Everything that he's talking about plays right into one of the things I really focus on. Every cop in America should have heard of UDA by now. Not many people know it as Boyd's Loop. Not many people get really dive into it deeply. But what's happening when he's taking somebody out of their car, he's resetting that decision-making process. They now have to reorient themselves. And every time you disrupt that loop, that loop starts over. And every time that loop starts over, and that puts you ahead in the decision-making process. And when he's sitting there and he's got those physical barriers and they're out of their environment, they're in his environment. If when he pulled them over, they had a plan to assault him, to facilitate an escape or if assault him out of hatred for the police, that resets their decision-making process every time. And when our decision-making process constantly gets reset and start gets, starts over, it elicits an emotional response, which is what he's picking up on in the car and all those little visual indicators you see, just like in the morning when you get up and you try to go to work and your wallet and your keys and your phone are laid in the same same place every day and you go to get your keys and your keys aren't done, you're like, where are my keys? And every time it completely resets your programming for your routine, it resets your decision-making process. And when you constantly can't find them, what happens to you? You start getting emotional. Well, that these things don't just apply to cops, they apply to all human beings. So when you constantly reset someone's position like that where you constantly exercise that position of dominance and they're constantly reacting to what you're doing you're eliciting an emotional response and we all know that decisions made out of emotion are not nearly as clear and clean as decisions made out of fact and logic i'm going to jump in here as somebody who teaches legal and maybe you're thinking in your mind cops can just have people step out of cars at traffic stops and the answer is yes they can pennsylvania versus 1977 with u.s supreme court case which decided without reasonable suspicion or any other kind of uh, warranted caution outside of the uh, at any motor vehicle stop, police officers 
or allowed to have a driver step out of a vehicle off to the side of the road and speak with them. It's not a Fourth Amendment intrusion. It's part of any traffic stop. Again, please check your local state case law, run Pennsylvania versus Mims against your state's case law in your state using Google Scholar or casetext.com, whatever it might be. And then Marilyn V. Wilson comes out 20 years later and they talk about, does that same rule apply to passengers in a vehicle? And the court said it does. Now, just to go back to the legals, I, we, we encourage police officers to use their brains and be smart about when we're going to have somebody step out of a vehicle. You don't have to show it fair across the board. You don't have to be pulling over people when you're blindly running radar and having them come out of cars when there's no other reasonable suspicion factors. We have an RES checklist that people haven't even checked through. If you want a copy of that, you can email streetcoptraining at gmail.com. But it's it's insane that you can – hold on a second real quick uh, – that you guys can uh, – you know, the, the same tactics that are going to – occur the same reasonable session checklist uh, or the same same checks marks on that list that are going to occur when there's criminality to foot that also is the same kind of stuff you're going to see when somebody's looking to hurt you or take your life so um these these tactics we we employ they're done for the better sake of mankind and, and the better good so that's the legals behind it check your state for example new jersey says we have to have a heightened caution to have passengers step out of a car on a traffic stop a far majority of states do not agree with that so just that's the legals behind people say, well, I don't know. I've never seen that before. To, right. We're asking you to deploy some humility and understand what the hell we're talking about. And that's that's so when I talk tactics, I always talk to people. I heard this phrase from Mike Lewis in an interdiction seminar many, many years ago. And he used to say you have to have a supercharged knowledge of the Constitution, your local and federal circuits, your your state law, your local ordinances and the traffic law, because it plays into your tactics. And it absolutely does. And if you understand Pennsylvania versus Mims, and you know that you can pull somebody out of a car. As soon as you pull someone out of a car, you completely eliminate the risk of a car chase, which is one of the highest liability and one of the most dangerous things we can get ourselves involved in. If they have weapons in the car, you completely extract them from access to their weapons. Once they're out of the car, all you're worried about is their person and anything they have concealed on their person. You really cut down and narrow your focus. And us as human beings, our psyche, our psyche, our our brains are only allowed to only allow us to focus on a certain amount of things at one time. And if you're focusing on a person inside of a car, it's a divided attention task. And you're almost not capable of comprehending everything that can go on in the passenger compartment of a car. You're much more capable when you're just dealing with the body instead of the body in the car. Cool. Ken, um, what are some of the things that you want to offer as far as any other, any other reasons why you would have somebody sit in the front seat of the car? I think with the judicial value of what you're recording inside the car, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, yeah, if I'm on the highway and cars are going by at 70 miles an hour and we're talking roadside, a lot of things get broken up at minimum. So hearing what they say, how they react, you're hearing a lot of things that you wouldn't hear with loud traffic. Um, Beyond that though, it's just, um, you create almost like an intimate environment. I try to befriend them, calm them down as much as possible. And if I stop someone that's completely legitimate, we're usually like bullshitting about sports and nothing that's important by the end of the conversation, because we have, I've created that rapport with them within, you know, that the few minutes of that traffic stop. Most people are super calm by the time that they leave my car if they're not doing anything wrong. It's, it's pretty amazing to see. And then if you have something or if you're doing something criminal, that stress level keeps going up because that you're, you know, you're been in my car for three minutes, for four minutes. And you're like, shit, this is, you know, this is taking long. You're, you're anticipating that this is going to be quick. But when you're sitting in my car, it probably seems like it's a lifetime because you, you have something criminal in nature that you're afraid that I'm going to find. 
You know, it's interesting, too, from a legal standpoint, uh, U.S. versus Rodriguez and then citing a lot of stuff because that Illinois v. Cabayas 2005, they talk about the permitted actions of a police officer on a traffic stop. And this is kind of a podcast where I'm looking at the legalities of what that is. Not hard to read and understand. But there's certain things you can do. And, and essentially, so if you don't aren't familiar with this, you don't understand what we're talking about. At every traffic stop, the inception of every traffic stop, every time there's a motor vehicle law broken, the police are given a time period based upon the scope of the traffic stop to perform, no matter what it's for, the same tasks. Now, police can begin to expand the scope of that stop when they have developed something called reasonable suspicion, specific factors that they can articulate that are different than a regular traffic stop where there's no criminality afoot. What's good about your tactic is you can do a lot while you're working on the things you're allowed to do. And because of that, and again, your your questioning uh, isn't considered intrusive when you're developing off-topic related situations and you're also collecting a lot of data on that. Then you get to your far intrusive questioning. That's why it's so legal to do it. That's why it's so smart. Going back and not having any more interaction while waiting for something else to occur, you're wasting a lot of time. You're wasting a lot of good resources. There's another essentially great reason why you would do this. Now, You'll have people who will say, oh, I work in the South Bronx. I would never. Okay. Nobody's arguing that, right? We're not saying yeah, take right. dangerous people in the front seat of your car. Let's not be ridiculous here. I still think you need to separate them from their car and do that same tactic, you know, outside both you guys outside the car. You're running their license and plate information and you're writing your ticket or warning all outside the car, but you can still communicate with that. You also, in the South Bronx, you don't have cars going by 70 miles an hour. Where you can't hear what the fuck they're saying. Yeah. Like, That's loud there too, though. Yeah. But I mean, Dude, check this out. I had a guy come in class and he goes, you know, at this police academy, I'm not going to say where, but you wouldn't be surprised if I said it where. Because at this police academy, we had our instructor tell us there's never a reason why somebody should come out of a car in a traffic stop. And I said to him, you know, how ridiculous is it that somebody at a police academy, what's their skill level that they're saying that? And that just tells me the guy has done nothing in his career except write bullshit, stupid fucking tickets for his whole career. Because I got to tell you, I would argue that there are many more times that somebody should have come out of the car and been left in the car. I hate, I hate when... I hate when that is said because I don't, I think it's an officer decision no matter what. If you want to leave him in and you feel comfortable or you pull him out, that you are in control of that scene. You dictate it how you please or however you want to do it. And there should be no supervision or anyone that's teaching you to tell you that there's an absolute way to do it or not to a, a, a way to do it or a way not to do it. You have supervision that will get mad when guys pull people out of a car because they don't have backup. So you're telling me that he, you as a cop, you see someone reaching around and you're like, stop reaching around and call for backup. I mean, where I work, backup could be a long time away. So you're going to tell him to leave him in there, let him keep reaching around for whatever the fuck he's trying to get while you're sitting there. It makes no sense to me. That's not logical. Yeah, because you have people who will sometimes get insignias pinned on their uniforms and have to try to justify and say some stupid shit. I always tell people the same thing. If you don't know what you're doing, you don't have to do something because you don't know what you're doing. It's okay. Right. You're better off doing nothing. Yep. So we, we have this... We have this thing. We're in we're in this era of policing where there's a lot of leftovers. There's a lot of leftovers from the previous generation, the previous style of, of police training. And anytime I, I you know, anytime you hear the word never come out of someone's mouth about any tactic, then you can kind of assume that they've closed their mind. At some point, they've closed their mind and they're not willing to evolve and listen to other people's opinions, which very often have tremendous value. The experience of just when I go out to teach, I learn more just talking to guys and gals in the breaks about my class. And every time I teach, I find stuff to update my class with based on the experiences 
of the cops that are in my class. And if you don't listen to what other people have to say, if you don't explore other opinions and other ideas, then you're going to stagnate and you're going to fall into that. Well, that's the way we've always done it. The yeah. most dangerous phrase in policing. The most dangerous phrase in the world. That's right. And at, in tactics and law enforcement, as at, as in life, there are very few absolutes. Think about think about what we're going through now. We have we have we're at a period that we've seen it already. Police officers are apprehensive to grab their pistol when they're justified to do so. So if we're talking about trying to reduce the risk of having to grab your pistol, but yet you're going to start pushing back on all these cops trying to come up with new resolutions and better ways to do things, you know, I, I say this over again. Even the previous episode of the podcast. Even if you are not on the front line adamantly arguing with police in a protest, behind the scenes on our side, you're claiming that you're on our side. You are no different than the person on that line screaming and throwing things at the police. You're not helping the situation. So you have to ask yourself a question. Are you hurting or helping things? You know, and I say that, and uh, I hope it hurts feelings, to be honest with you. And, you know, we talked about this on the last podcast. There's a gentleman I ran into last night, and, you know, Kenny and I, we're not going to talk about where it was, uh, who was very standoffish to us. Right. And I thought to myself, here we are, nice guys having a conversation. Could you imagine what it's like working for that guy? Right. You imagine what imagine what that must be like. And by the way, nobody's casting judgment here. The guy had a bad day. The guy wasn't feeling well. Right. But, you know, for me, it's scary to think that there are people out there who don't even have their ears open. Right. Right. And I, I literally, even in business, I don't try to sell the unsellable. We'll have like Scott Kibbe, for example, he he has now taken his personal mission to convince some of the unconvinced agencies in the New Jersey area to start sending to our training, which I agree. There's it's silly. But I'm like, Scott, you know, we're not here to try to convince the unconvincible. You're going to find yourself running in circles and loops and nothing's going to get accomplished. Why are we arguing and yelling to the people that don't care? Let's let's just take all our energy and give to the people who do care. And eventually the, the that pendulum swings and they'll eventually see the value in what we're doing. And at this point now, even though we're in a very uh, still immature stage as a company, in my mind, compared to how Fortune 200, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies look, we're big enough in this industry where there should be some trust and some value. And if you're not having that trust and some value, or at least that open mind to come see what it looks like or what it, hear what we have to say, it speaks volumes of your character. And somebody will hear this and go, fuck these guys, turn them off, Right. But that, again, shows it just reiterates over and over again. You cannot hide from people how you're behaving. And if you're having that kind of behavior, you need to recognize that and maybe go see a therapist. So what's so what's needed in police work is is real talk where people don't get offended. Uh, ego free assessment of what yes, we yeah. do. Ego can take a, a very good productive moment and throw it right in the shitter because of ego and fear, fear of the unknown. And that's what that's what we have in our country right now. The, the divides that we have in our country are simply the fear of the unknown and political issues uh, that get mixed in and use that to our, to their well, sure, but, the police are the points. That's right. Yeah. Police are the, are the scapegoats. But you know, when you have someone like that, they, it makes them nervous when they don't know or understand what you're doing. And what we need in police work is a very real, honest conversation about the tactics we use. And, by focusing on tactics and by focusing on things like highway interdiction and by focusing on those things and understanding the science behind what we do, like what he was doing with this, the interview he did with his psychologist friend. That's phenomenal because when people understand the why of what you're doing, when they understand the process, the outcome is always exponentially better. And we can't measure prevention. We can we can measure cops assaulted, cops killed, kilos we seize, money we seize. We can measure those kind of things. The important things are the things we prevent. We can never quantify what we prevent. We can never quantify the cops that don't die, whether it's by, you know feloniously assaulted or by their own hand. 
we can never measure what we prevent. And that's, that's the goal is to, is to, is to attain the unmeasurable and understand the unmeasurable part of what we do. It's interesting. I got a conversation with a guy recently and he said, uh, I think we're actually moving to a part in law enforcement where proactive police work on the highways and traffic stops is going to be really our only way to fight crime comfortably, right. right? You're not seeing a lot of stuff in, um, you know, controversial issues coming out of traffic stops generally, right? I mean, you know, so he said that's the only way we're going to be able to fight crime as well as while well, it's in cars and vehicles on the roadways. That traffic stop is that's traffic stop is so case law foundationally based. Like it's very hard to beat that. It's been there forever. We know what we can and can't do, and it's not changing and it hasn't changed in so long. It's very rare that there would be something that would change it. So I think that's why whatever that officer said, like it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. That, that, that there's rigidity to, to that, right. There's, there, it's a, it's a very rigid blind. It's either you can do it or you can't do it. And when you understand the seven principles around it, I'm just using a number. Uh, you you don't have to deviate. Once you get that perfected, you can just repeat, repeat, repeat where you go into a situation where you're being sent somewhere, the variables are unknown. And um, when you don't know how to, let's face facts. Most cops don't have good legal understanding of even how the wall works. Crazy. It sounds and I say that with the intention of not exposing our weaknesses, but to try to fix our weaknesses to say, hey, we're, we're, we got problems here. You know what I mean? And, and if you're looking for resolution, we have the answers. And this is not a shot at me to say, come see me, give me your money. I will fix it all. But I'm also saying, like, we, we know how to fix it. And the, the answer is not just the answer is not because we're all I mean, we're all pretty smart dudes. I mean, we really are. And we've, we've had the, I, I have benefited from being surrounded by thoroughbreds my whole career. I had the luxury of working in small units where for a good part of the time, I got to pick the people that were in the units and I tried to pick thoroughbreds. I tried to pick people that were actually better than me at what they do. Mm -hmm. And most of the people that ended up in my unit were better than me at it. And I have benefited from that. But also I always tried to stay real whether it was something flawed, something I fucked up, some giant mistake I made, whether it was out of arrogance or ignorance. I always tried to stay real like that. And I think that's part of the appeal about us. Like, for instance, when I first started following Street Couple on Facebook, uh, your personality, I was like, wow, he's, pre he's pretty loud. And then as soon as I meet you, I'm like, oh, he's, he's a fucking decent guy. And that's the fear of the unknown. That's what probably turns people off to mm -hmm. us. But I, on the same point, I think part of the attraction that, people feel to us is the fact that we're real and we do speak our mind and we do speak very pointedly sometimes in my class. when I, when I criticize, it's not opinions. Class, like if you really think about what we're talking about, here, it's not opinions of fact-based things. Analysis is based on, on real fact-based stuff. We do not right. hear letting our emotions dictate our actions. And like when I teach, I don't say anything in my class about anybody in any of the videos or any of the debriefs that we do that I wouldn't say to them if that, if they were my teammate, a unit member with me, if I worked for them and they were my boss or I was their boss, I wouldn't say anything in my class that I wouldn't say to them. If I say, you look like a bag of shit, you need to unfuck yourself. I would, that's what I would say to them in person. You know, I, I, so it's, it's just real. And I think that's what a, appeals to people. You know, when, when you see a picture of a, a street cop instructor, we're not sitting in front of the FBI National Academy flag in a suit and tie. We're just real dudes teaching real stuff to real street cops. Because like you said, you'd be shocked what cops don't know. And that's our fault. That's our fault uh, as, as a, a community of trainers in America. That's our fault. Well, on top of that, I think I, it's really politics is where it begins. That's right. So yeah. po politics is where the yeah. where the issues begin. If you really start to look at the analysis of things, uh, I think Jacob Hoover said 
politics and law enforcement should always be kept separate. There's no doubt. Yeah. And they're intertwined and it's a disaster. And it's never the only people who can change are the ones who benefit from the most. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to change it because then it changes the whole program of how they've gotten ahead and what the things they've done. And you know what? I don't care if they don't want to host my training because I said that because I'm calling them out. I always tell people, I go, you think you're kidding anybody when they know your fucking cousin's the mayor and you're and you're the lieutenant, like, and you're fucking four years on the job and you're a head, you're a head super. Who, like, who do you think you're kidding inside when you know that some of the, the three guys in patrol would have made far better of a supervisor than you are? You think you're going to, you think people have earned your trust? No bullshit, dude. If I was, had that kind of connection that was known, I'd say, don't promote me. You know, it, but if you're going to, I'm going to do the right job, not just because I've, I know somebody. Right. And I, you know, in class, we always talk about it. I go, who here works at an agency that getting promoted is fair and built on your leadership abilities? And I'm not to this day. Oh, I have one girl recently in Texas who said, we do. I said, get out of here. She goes, yeah, there's 32 of us. Our chief is 37 years old. And he actually, and then I brought up later on, I go, imagine if you could review chiefs, right? Let's say your chief, well, you know, I, I find it very interesting that, and I, I don't want to sound redundant because in other podcasts I talk about this. I think it's amazing that patrolmen get annual reviews or semi-annual reviews or quarterly reviews. But once you make administration, you're off the chopping block. There's no more accountability. Imagine if we turned it around or just at least made it the, the playing field equal. Your chief gets a review. Here's 10 questions on, is your chief doing a good job? Are you going to adequate training? Is there nepotism that you can notice, right? Does your chief act selflessly or selfishly? Uh, and by the way, if you get too many strikes, there's some kind of overseeing force that comes in and says, okay, well, your job's on the line now. You have had enough checkboxes on these reviews from your people, anonymous reviews, that something's very wrong here, and we're going to address it, and we're going to find the right person. How about this? How about promoting on votes? Right? Imagine if everybody had an equal vote in a police department. Even though there could be a little nepotism in there, nobody in their right mind is ever going to vote for the jerk off. They know he's not going to do the good job. You could take a guy like me who I scared people with my work ethic and tactics, right? But I also knew that I was one of the best people they could have in their corner in every dynamic that you could think about. I would take jobs. I was very selfless. I always helped out. I always came up the road. I got a big job. I go help him at his job. I, I would just... So even though some people would be fearful of me becoming a supervisor or a chief because I'd be promoting proactivity and they don't want to work, I think they also trust the fact that I was a good dude where we know that there's some people who aren't good dudes. I'd rather have a good dude who's not as proactive than a fucking lunatic in charge, right? Give me a guy who is a good dude, doesn't give a rat's ass about doing any work. I'll take him over anybody who is a psychopathic person who's a jerk off. I always say in class, I go, I've never understood this mentality. Hey, you see this guy over here? Everybody hates his guts. You see this girl over here? Everybody hates her. Let's give her chevrons. What is the mentality behind that? You know what I mean? Like I, And then we talk about, like, I run a business, right? So there are a lot of conversations that have to happen that aren't fun to happen. How do chiefs allow their frontline supervision, middle-line supervision, even top-end supervision, misbehave towards people? And not like it, but do nothing about it. You fucking said I'm going to be the chief. Right. So you better get your ass up and open your fucking mouth, because when you don't do anything, everybody knows you didn't do anything. And when shit get, when people get allowed to do things like even at this company, bro, when somebody fucks off here, everybody comes in and tell me because it ain't fair. Right. So like, you know, we're all working. If somebody's showing up late and everybody else showing up on time, that's my job. Right. Hey, we all show up at 930. It ain't fair. You're rolling at 1030. Sorry. You know what I'm saying? That's my job to do it because it's not fair to everybody else. It's not even me who has a problem with it. 
But I know as a leader, I have to act. In order for them to trust me and feel comfortable with me as their leader, I've got to step up and have the hard conversations. And that's part of it, man. You can't yeah. work. You want the fucking promotion. You better have the hard conversations. That's, right. that's what you put in for. Yeah. I think trust is the biggest thing. Even in promotions, like if you promote a guy that is trustworthy from the, his subordinates and from up top, I, I, that's, I think that's the biggest quality. Sure. You could always motivate someone to be more proactive. You could always educate them if they're not the most intelligent, but trust is the biggest thing when it comes to promotions, I feel. You ever see that Simon Sinek video? I remember I shared that a while back and I talked about the trust level. They'd have, really have a guy who was trust yeah. that they could trust. Team six selection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so trustworthiness is the most important thing. And you know what? People can earn trust. If you've lost trust, you can earn it back. Takes humility, but these guys can't do it, man. I've, I've given advice on this. Hey, I go, they fucking hate you. You know, you now you're the guy. Nobody likes you. Can I fix it? You 100% can, but you got to first say it, offer the apology, and then prove it, right? You can always change. People can always change their mindset, especially in a position, a supervisory position. It's like kids who have shitty parents, right? You can come back into your kid's life 20 years later and are still looking to have a relationship with you. As crazy as that sounds, you're their dad. You're a dickhead for 16 years. That kid's still going to take you back into their life. It's no different because they want to make it work. They want you to be a good boss. They're done having a bad boss. Um, it's a sad state of affairs. And, and you can get better as a leader if you want to. The problem is there's no accountability. If there was accountability on a leadership standpoint, right? And by the way, this is not directed at those bosses, those chiefs, those direct, all the people who line up with what we believe in. They're 100% on board with this. They've gotten to the point where they can make an impact and change. They believe the same thing we believe. So so I, I was always very fortunate. At our agency, I thought we had a very good promotional process in place. Obviously, it, no matter what kind of process you run or how you do your promotions, somebody that doesn't deserve to be in a position like that is going to get there for some reason or mm -hmm. another. But we were very fortunate. And I, a long time ago, uh, a guy I worked with, we'll call him Pac-Man, uh, he had a reverse evaluation that he would hand out to his people that worked That's with great. him on his shift. And I always thought that was the, the coolest thing. And he actually, it was a five or seven question questionnaire that he would give to as a sergeant he would give out to his people to evaluate the job that he was doing and kenny and i were talking about this earlier unfortunately in our business we we create environments where you have guys that don't want to go higher than sergeant because as soon as they're a sergeant it's a different world it's a different it's literally a different profession i mean i when i when i was a new sergeant i got chastised by a lieutenant for actually locking some people up every now and then Wow. And, and I, I, I sat and I literally, I argued with the guys like this, this is how I stay in touch with what I was as opposed to what I've become. This is how I stay the same person just with a different set of responsibilities. And this is what will get people to respect me and follow me. And for those that do that did, and it, and it, it was a good thing. And I, I think I had the reputation as a working sergeant. And I think it's a cool reputation to have, by the way. I think I had that. I mean, I yeah. had people tell me that and I, I, I like to think that I did. I failed. I mean, I failed out of ignorance and arrogance, just like everybody else in the world. But we have to think about creating and fostering an environment in police work where people actually want to be leaders. I mean, you know, like Tom, Tom's proud of what he's doing as a captain, a police captain. And we should have more police leaders like that, because when you get to a point where there's a stagnation, this institutionalized mediocrity, where you get to a position of a sergeant, like, I don't want to be, I don't, I never wanted to go higher than sergeant because I didn't want to write schedules. Mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to do police work. Yeah. I think once you become a supervisor, if you're not going to be doing the same work that you're, you're the people that work for you are, you're going to lose touch at simple things of just doing learning, knowing how to do the job, the simple things of paperwork and affidavits and this stuff. So then if someone comes to you with questions and you haven't done it in five or 10 years because you're a supervisor, we don't arrest people. 
but you don't have the answer. So now what do you do? You're like, oh, fuck, just make some stuff up, lie, or like tell them, I don't know because I don't do this anymore. What's more fun than a sergeant making an arrest and handing it off to a patrolman, right? Isn't that the fucking best? Come on, dude. You know what I mean? Hey, take this one from me. Hey, bro. And, and by the way, we had both. We had one guy who would hand it off, and he knows who he is. He won't listen to this. Uh, not a bad guy, but that's what he would do. He would use his uh, do this, do do this for me. Would you do do, do this for me? Uh, you take care of do the booking sheet. I'll, and he goes back and writes the report because it's his report. You got to write the report. We had to do everything else for him, right? Wasn't a bad guy. And they get the other guy who's like, no, no, you want to give me a hand with it? That's great, but like I'm gonna knock this thing out real fast. So uh, you well, know, one of the best patrol commanders I've ever had. If you arrested someone on days, he would be like the first one in the booking room to like. He has a bunch of shit going on, but he hears you coming in with the prisoner. He'll do the booking sheet, the property inventory, all that stuff to like alleviate some small workload. But he never had it. You know what I'm saying? Like, but that just shows that he cares and he's trying to help you out in any way that he can. I think it's a human trait to want to help others. You know what I mean? And I think we get mixed in with uh, a few different kind of, I don't know, comparisons, lazy people, motivated people, right? People care too much. People don't give a shit at all. And then I think people who are much more uh, selfless versus people very selfish. It's probably three major comparisons that you could find in any police dynamic in any police department. And as I said before, I used to tell guys, look, if uh, when you become a new sergeant, just remember something. It was working fine before you got here. It's going to work fine after you leave. You don't got to come in and change everything up unless it's something of good value. People can't handle it, dude. You know, people cannot handle that responsibility. They think they have to act. And sometimes they get pressure from the top to do things that is out of their character. And uh, people, I had a guy one time tell me, he goes, I've been chasing promotions my whole career. He goes, and I'm done with him now because I took your class. He goes, I've, I've lost sight of why I took this fucking job. I've right. not, I'm actually not having fun. He's like, I'm a lieutenant now and I'm not even having fun at this shit anymore. Right. I'm just playing the promotion chasing game to try to make more money. And that's, that's another real problem with law enforcement is the only way to make more money is to climb up the ranks. You have people who don't want to be leaders but want to make more money. Um, it's, it's, it's not structured correctly. It's not, it's not the whole system is based on, on a really horrible ideas. Yeah. And I, I, I was like, again, I, I will always say I was incredibly fortunate to have some really good influencers early in my career. Another, another person that I really t looked up to, we'll call him Captain Bo. He, you know, he was big on teamwork and he instilled in us the, 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 the fact of teamwork. So, you know, in the drug and special enforcement, you know, where we worked, if we were out doing by bus one night and we had a whole stack of arrests, we didn't leave the guys with arrests sitting there with three tables full of evidence and charging documents and vouchers to do and chain of custody forms to fill out. We went and we got a stack of pizzas. Yeah. And all of us sat there until it was all done or to everyone was too tired to work. And then when we went home as a team and we came back as a team the next day and we finished it. And that kind of, you know, when I did that in patrol, the times that I did it in patrol, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning when the midnight shift is over and you got one poor schmuck sitting there with five bags of dope and, yeah. and at money that he's photocopying and a gun he's trying to package up and three charging documents to do. And everybody's like, see ya, 1042 out the door. I'm like, and I, I would call everybody back. Let's, let's help this guy out. Instead of him having eight hours of overtime and being completely worthless tonight, let's all put in an hour and a half and get this done. You know, it's interesting. We had, uh, I remember one time I came off the road. We had a guy get, new rookie gets three shoplifters. So I come back off the road and, and the sergeant or lieutenant at the time, he was a sergeant and became a lieutenant. He comes to the back. He's like, what are you doing back here? I go, he's a rookie. He got three. He got three, he, his shift ends in two hours. I'm here till three in the morning, right? It's like five, six o'clock at night. I go, he's supposed to be going home. He's never getting out of here, right? And it's not, he, he has things to do tomorrow. I think his kid had some kind of baseball right. game. I'm like, what are you fucking crazy? He's like, you're supposed to be on the road though. But I listen to me. If something kicks off, I will leave headquarters and go to where I need to be. But this is not fair. 
because you're sitting in the back. I told him, I go, you're sitting in the back doing nothing. You could be doing this with him, but I know you're not coming up here and he's looking at me getting angry. I go, yeah, but dude, that's how I said things. I'm going to cut. I need you to go back on the road. I go, I will go back on the road. And I actually, I think negotiated him. I said, I'll go back on the road, but let me finish his booking sheets, his pictures, his fingerprints, and, and I'll do the complaints for him. Once I'm done with that, take me 40 minutes. I'll go back on the road and he could do the rest. And he's like, and he was like, all right, but make it quick. Right. You know, so look, yeah, I had to negotiate to help somebody. That's craziness. I mean, the change, the change comes, the change comes like this. If we got, we foster these environments in law enforcement and it comes right down, whether it's investigations, like he's doing highway interdiction, whether it's survival tactics, we, we foster these environments, a good, a good leader is going to have a shift that wants to go out and work. And when they want to go out and work, they want to be on point. When they want to be on point, they're going to have that supercharged knowledge of, you know, the constitutional law, the state law, the local laws and ordinances. And when you fix your little circle around you, your circle starts to intersect with other circles because what happens, you get two or three people that are out there running and gunning and getting after it. The other people in the ship are like, hmm. And they're either going to roll along in strong support or they're going to start running and gunning and getting after it. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon when you when you have a guy on your shift make a traffic stop, someone who's 75 blocks away that's not on scene is on Facebook, is on Instagram looking up. Hey, he's got a picture of himself on Facebook with a with a handgun and a, and a bag of weed, you know, feeding people intel like that, working as a team instead of a bunch of individuals out there checking boxes and watching Netflix all night. It all starts from the top, man. I've, I've, I've actually never. I've never worked for a top leader. Like I've never had a top official be an actual leader. Just never have. I've had a couple and I was like, I've had none. I had mid-level guys who were very good, uh, but never top level, good leadership. Uh, always, even some of the guys who were the good ones also behind the scenes were very selfish. Yeah. I remember when they, when they talked about their training budget and uh, they, I started getting involved in training there because I'd started doing the training classes and they made me a, uh, it's a long story, but I said, what's the training budget? I think it's like thirty-two or $37,000 a year. And I was like, what? what? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, how come nobody goes to fucking training? And I'm starting to look at training records. It's all the captains and lieutenants are going to schools. We had a chief like that. Yeah, guys are all guys who work inside are all going to schools. We have we got guys making $190,000 a year in their positions, taking security jobs. And the guys who are making 45 with three kids at home and, and are veterans – can't get a can't get a security gig at a mall and make extra money for their kids, but you got these fucking pigs up top making one ninety, doing another sixty on security on the side. It's crazy, dude, yeah. and uh, it's horrible behavior. And nobody says anything because they're scared of those guys. Uh, it's 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 just wild, man. And and when I I realized I started working for a fucked up agency, they were probably some great guys and girls, but some of the people in that agency were the, some of the most selfish human beings I've ever seen in my life. I've never met more selfish people. Um, who sometimes in the surface would pretend like they weren't. And maybe in some certain areas, they would be good. But, dude, you want to talk about self-serving? model? forget it was unbelievable. Yeah. I was lucky. I was fortunate. Yeah. I, mean, I, I hear horror stories, and I, I, I count my blessings all the time that I had a couple of really good people that influenced me, and I was surrounded by a lot of smart cops. And by the way, we were talking about the bad things. Be we're not going to fix the good things, right? Yeah. Yeah. The good things are the good things. We talk about the bad yeah. things because we got to call these things out, you know? And uh, until you leave, I mean, it's just it's just wild to look at the. I tell people all the time, they go, why'd you start this training company? go, because the whole thing's fucked up. And I think we can unfuck it a little bit. Yeah. I, I, really, I really believe that. Well, you guys have anything else you want to talk about today? I got nothing. All right, so everybody, Kenny Williams, Interdiction Mastermind, the Red Ninja 
on Instagram at the Red Ninja 111, right? Mm-hmm. Red underscore Ninja 111. Right. He doesn't know his fucking Instagram handle. <laughs> I, think I don't know mine either. It's Red Ninja underscore 111, I believe. But hold on, let me check. Uh, Jeff Smith, uh, great asset to Street Cop Training, teaching academy class, uh, a class called Street Academy, streetcop.com. You'll find, right? Yeah, I had it right. Red underscore Ninja 111 uh, on Instagram. He does a lot of cool stuff. It's a private group, though, right? It is a private group. Yeah. So he puts a lot of his information up there. Jeff does a lot of thoughtful stuff. He's a big part of the Street Cop Training family. Works actually in the office as well, doing our uh, development of new instructors and goes through a lot of that stuff. Boy, it's a tedious job. These guys are some of the best instructors in the country. I'm not saying that every great instructor is found at this company, but I certainly make sure that I find those who meet the criteria for what the bar I set has been. And we do have to say no to a lot of people to get the, you know, we've, we, sh- we shuffle through a lot of shit to find some diamonds. We've got a lot of good ones. We've got some in the pipeline that are coming on. Oh, badass. We've got a really well-rounded instructor lineup, I think. Yeah, we're going to do big things, man. Yeah. So, All right, guys. It's great having you. Thank you so much. Appreciate everybody's continued support. Check out streetcoptraining.com or streetcop.com. Check our Facebook group out. It's a Facebook group for law enforcement. You got to pass the questions, pass the test to get in. At the Street Cop Conference, October 4th through the 8th, 2021, Harris Atlantic City. The lineup is insane. You do not want to miss that event. See you guys.